Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Dear Dead People, where we talk about the many failures of history and how those failures affect the people of today. Directed, produced, and written by Gen Z across the world. Joining us today is Ainsley Payne from Girls Inc. for Yemen. This episode covers King Darius the Great and the current humanitarian crisis in Yemen. Hear the intro music. considered to be one of the best leaders and rulers of ancient Persia. And um, he helped um, to sustain and grow such a large empire to keep everything flowing properly. He essentially recognized a lot of the issues of a large empire and made many positive administration changes for better organization and efficiency, such as roads connecting the empire for better travel and communication, dividing the empire into like 20 sections, each headed by its own um, authoritative figure, um, moving the capital around, developing large centers, and relating to Plato's time and dialogues. Darius also implemented the standardization of coin money, which was efficient for its time because most of other civilizations that use money needed to weigh the coins for their value. Darius also ensured fair and standard taxes and helped facilitate trade with standard coins and highways, um, improving irrigation, which in turn led to massive expansion in agricultural abilities and availabilities for the food in Persia. State religion was Zoroastrianism and that gave Persians a sense of identity, but they were never forced to convert to Zoroastrianism and they were allowed to keep and practice their own religion. So that was the first instance of religious freedom ever before. Um, he also made the first human rights charter in 539 BCE. So it detailed the tolerance for all races, languages, and religions, which was kind of like groundbreaking, I guess. He was the first ruler who allowed people to be themselves, basically, and practice what they wished. And so that was really, quite honestly, the reason that there was not uprisings all over the place, because with such a large territory like there would have been people and groups who, if they were forced to just what the Persians had been doing, that they would have risen up. So this whole thing was really, um, I guess, new and helpful to keeping power over such a large region. As someone that doesn't practice the majority, the major religion that I am in, religious freedom, is, like, very important to me. Um, I don't know about you guys. Um, so even though Darius was, like, super tolerant about everything, that didn't mean that Persia was, like, a wonderful place to live. Honesty and justice were paramount, and punishments for crime were brutal, often starting with different methods of torture and ending with death. Accounts of Persia have their people depicted as violent and murderous, However, this is kind of unclear how true it is because the accounts came from enemies of Persia 
or lands conquered by Persia. And as we've discovered on our show, history can be kind of biased to whoever wins. But the one thing that is known to be true is the skill and efficiency of the Persian armies, especially the mortals, a group of 10,000 best fighters who were referred to as killing machines. So transitioning from Persia to the topics that we're going to cover today, the Yemen crisis, um, and basically international politics. How has the freedom of religion impacted you guys? I mean, I am not a very religious person, but my family is. So it kind of gives me the freedom to stray from, you know, Christianity that my family um, is involved in to other religions, um, even like atheism and that just being a completely fine and okay thing without any punishment from anyone. So I feel like that's kind of cool, but I don't have like a lot of um, experience with like religion, stuff like that. I feel like the freedom of religion doesn't mean much to me as it does to people who practice different religions than the commonly widely accepted one. So, but I do know for sure that um, allowing people to choose their religion and not be persecuted or punished is extremely important. A lot of like westernized countries like um, parts of Europe and the United States see them as like almost barbaric in a certain way because of because of the religion they practice, which is just completely false because the religion just really practices, I mean, love like any other religion should. Um, and, you know, especially after some like events in this country, there has been a definite stigma that they are barbaric and just, um, what's the word? Not mean, but violent that's the word I don't know why that was just like um away from me but um there's definitely that stigma um I've seen I mean a lot of some of my friends um like are Muslim or practice different religions and I have seen absolute prejudice against them in my little like mainline corner of whiteness and Christianity so that's incredibly disappointing but that's the stigmas I've seen um yeah yeah, I think definitely Islamophobia has really ri- risen over the past decade, especially with um, what happened on 9-11, the towers and the Pentagon. Um, and mostly I attribute that to, like, the media's portrayal. I think there's some, I don't know how you can control the media, but it's been really harmful to people of different ethnicities and practicing of different religions. And it has kind of made them feel foreign, even though, like, they live here. This is their home. And they're not, it's like a very, very small percentage of them that are extremists. You know what I mean? Most people here are not educated about anything over there. They don't know what they're talking about. They can't even tell you where Iran is on a map. And they speak about these people as if they know all the intimate details, as if they can read their minds. And I'm just like, it doesn't um, make any sense to me, basically, how people treat Middle Easterners because it's just uncalled for and they have no idea what they're doing. With what we just learned about Darius and Persia, it seemed like for a while that region was tolerant of the relig- the different religions and cultural practices. And 
somehow we've gone to this point where people are dying over it and that's just crazy it totally contradicts what was happening in the past um so moving on universal human rights what do you think are i know there's already doctrines out there there's the official one by the un um other countries like france have their own version of the universal human rights to you what should um those rights be personally um human rights i mean the right i mean tying to what we've been talking about the right to practice whatever you want to practice the right i mean to basic necessities food water housing the right just for freedom in general i mean those are like the main things that are like big bold like these need to happen that's kind of my thought process on that people here don't consider food and water and access to shelter to be human rights and I'm like how does that make sense you're living as a human you have the right to continue living right how are you supposed to continue living if you literally can't exposure to the elements will kill you starvation or dehydration will kill you if something could kill you it's a human right to like prevent it it, that's that's how I think. And so in extreme situations, we need to be doing everything we can to help people who are lacking the things necessary to survive, you know? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different aspects to the economy here and the politics behind it about, oh, free this and free that and everybody's all up in a tizzy all the time. But I feel like there are times where we should just like put that aside and focus on what needs to be done right now to help people, you know? Um, definitely the access to Medicare and um, all the basic necessities and also education. I feel like the thing is, I think everybody disses on like free healthcare. They're like, Oh, my taxes are going to go up and everything and it's all going to suck. But if we look at it from a basic economic perspective, you can still have privatized healthcare and public healthcare, and they won't compete with each other too much. You know what I'm saying? I don't get why people are so scared to have that basic freedom. Um, and I also think education is really important because how else are you going to move up the social ladder if you don't have that right? Kind of tying into that education and social ladder, like even like the poverty circle. Like, you're born poor, you don't have access to education, you can't um, climb up that social ladder, you can't get a good job, and it just leads to this continuous circle that's growing and growing and growing, especially in this country because of that lack of funding for education or higher education that you need to get, like, well-paying jobs. And I think, like, that's very important. So thank you for bringing that up. I, I just, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, it's definitely a pretty rough cycle. Once you're in, you can get out. Or like a very small percentage gets out. Right. And it's also like um, the disparity between the rich and the poor keeps increasing. And like this, you know, when you're in economics class, the most basic thing you're taught is that you can't just print more money, right? It's like inflation and everything. So I don't understand why people don't get that if the rich have more money, the poor have less. And it's like, if there's 
nine, if 90% of the people are poor in this country and the top 1% has 90% of the country's wealth, what, what isn't clicking? What's, what's not, what's going wrong? Because I just think it's so straightforward and like, it's the top 1% does have 90% of our country's wealth. I think people just don't understand that. So I don't get why people aren't more concerned about the wealth disparity, you know, like it's a huge issue and it is just extremely cyclical and it just is contributing to all these different issues. So I don't get why we're not trying to fix things because we can't print more money. If you just keep taking it away from the poor, they're not going to have anything to sustain themselves. And then you blame it on them. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think it has a lot to do with how, um, I can't, I don't know about other countries, but I know that the U.S. spends like an insane amount on military and stuff. And I think even like the, the slightest percentage, say like 15% of the military budget could do so much good in reviving that poverty cycle. You could build um, training centers for people who like, dropped out of high school or don't know what to do with their lives. You could respend that money into uh, public ed- education, you know, things like that. I think what we really lack as a country is looking at our- ourselves as a whole and saying we need to invest in everyone, not just, you know, the-, the 1%. And why do we even need to spend that much on military? We're not in a war. We're literally not in a war right now. Yeah, the military budget is crazy. Um from a child of a parent who was in the military um I mean even if we like you said took a little bit of it and and like put it into like things like mental health um like that could like almost erase um people on the streets because a lot of them suffer from addictions and mental health and if we just give them help maybe they will you know I mean, they'll be healthier, but yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, it's crazy that even even with all the money we're spending on military, a lot of veterans still end up on the streets and having PTSD and not getting addressed with that mental health. And it's like, what are you really spending this on? Like, what is important? The people coming back home is what's important, you know? Yeah. Yep. Anyway. So we're talking about universal human rights. How would you go about implementing these like changes? What would you focus on? I mean, I would allocate different funds from the military budget into housing and mental health outlets and education and healthcare and you know all the basic necessities that there is not a lot of money in um, publicly. And I mean, the privatization of this country is a little concerning. Um, just because, like you said, a lot of the medical, Medicare, not Medicare, because that's like the opposite of what I'm saying, but, um, but a lot of the medical field is privatized. And if we even publicized a little bit of that, it would, I mean, free healthcare and just, it's just a necessity because who should decide whether you live or you die? Um, not your monetary status. Um, so I think that's a big and that we need to implicate for, you know, like these human rights, these basic necessities and stuff like that. I honestly wouldn't even know where to begin in our political system trying to 
pass something to help people just because of how messed up it is and how long it takes and all these tricks and schemes that people will use to like delay a vote or wait until they're out of session to do anything meaningful with the time. So like actual, like actually getting anything done in this country would be next to impossible, at least for the foreseeable future before there are new people in Congress. That's, that's a different issue. <laughs> um, but I would definitely agree with you. I would focus on changing the budget first off and reassessing like what's important truly to the survival of the people, to, for the health of people, for the general good. Because right now, uh, the focus is not on the general good. It's on the people at the top and how much wealth they can accumulate. And I just think that's so messed up. And the fact that most people don't even recognize it and they just don't even, they just consider everything to be okay. And they think that, um, like everybody knows that the government is horrible, but none of them want to admit it and like try to change it, you know? So um, we've been talking about what we would do back home back here in America and in general Western countries when we're talking about things that are happening overseas like in Yemen with people dying and the government in shambles and their civil war how do we balance humanitarianism with like not invading other people how do we make ourselves not like a a, a policeman or like a bully in the global spectrum when we're trying to defend other people's rights I mean, we should focus on the humanitarian, the hu- human rights we mentioned earlier, instead of focusing on, you know, like the economy there and you know the oil that um, is is there. And because I feel like that's the root of all problems and why we, the U.S. actually goes to war um, is oil. And I feel like we should definitely focus on in those countries providing food and health care and enough water because there is a drought. And especially during the pandemic, a lot of those countries got left in the dust, right? They're like, we have to focus on ourselves because the United States is a very individualistic country. We're very focused on ourselves. And even in the country, we're very focused on our person. That's a really big problem because, I mean, countries like Yemen or other countries in the Middle East are suffering like incredible incredibly and they're just not getting any help because a lot of these westernized countries focus are focusing on themselves which part of it I understand because it is a big crisis but part of it is we do have the funds to send and to the um medical supplies and food we have more than enough food um to send um and water just to help out even if it's a little bit because if each westernized country gave a little bit it it would i think it would be solved and not not just the countries the billionaires in the countries too um but yes so that's my answer to that question i don't know i honestly don't know what i would do if i was a billionaire but just watching people make plans for like different things you could do with the money that billionaires have. 
Like you could have solved world hunger three times over, or you could have provided complete clean water access to everyone just, just because, and you would still have like billions of dollars left over. The fact that that doesn't happen and that, you know, people like Jeff Bezos just hoard all their money. He's not going to use it. He's never going to use it. There, it's impossible to use it all. So why not try to make the world a better place, you know? I think the answer to that question is because they're exploiting the people in these third world countries. They are using them for their own profit. So why would they want to give supplies and necessities back? Because if if they're if you're exploiting them and the only source of income they have is your minimum minimum wage, why would you want to give them free supplies when they're just like, oh, I could just get this instead of working for you when you treat me like absolute garbage and he would he wouldn't have any workers to exploit anymore. Um, so I think that's a reason why a lot of billionaires um, don't donate. Or they do, but not to the right places, you know? I don't know. I think on a, on a certain level, the government has a little difficulty discerning um, because I, I know a lot of people in America think that we shouldn't get involved in other people's problems. Even though we have the ability to and everything, we should just focus on everything at home. And I get the, the, the point of that. I see it. But I think we countries and governments and organizations in general have a social responsibility to make everyone feel better you know even if it's just in the littlest way possible i mean how can you be part of an environment without contributing to that environment and not looking for like the optimal level of everyone's happiness okay so moving on (laughs) ainsley can you tell us a little bit about your organization Yes, so I am the founder of an organization, Girls Inc. for Yemen. We sell, um, actually, I'm going to start, I'm going to start back to where we started, and then I'm going to move to the present. So we started, um, like, late June, early July, um, when I was, when I first found out about the Yemen crisis, and nobody was talking about it. There weren't being funds raised. I didn't see, like, those, like, um TikTok donation links about it I don't know that's kind of stupid but um and so I was like I felt very useless and I was like what can I do um and I turned to my art and my jewelry making skills um and I was like you know what let's just use it because like that's all I really have to donate and to produce so I gathered a couple friends for like product donations that they would send me over the um summer and I sold them and 90% of the proceeds goes straight to direct reliefs sector of Yemen. Um, the other 10% is used to, um, you know, keep our business up and running and stuff like that. Right now we're selling earrings, some necklaces, I think like a couple bracelets that are just, you know, like beads and stuff like that. In the future, I definitely want to focus on like higher quality, like clay earrings um that I'm kind of shifting to instead of the polyesterine plastic which I used um that doesn't mean it will be more expensive but more money going to Yemen and I also want to focus on like 
Oh, I also sell rings. I forgot about the rings. Sorry. Um, and then I also want to focus on, you know, getting my name and brand more out there and, you know, like in the public eye, because right now it's basically just like everyone from Conestoga, which is the high school I go to, a couple people from like surrounding schools, and then a lot of people from from other organizations kind of doing the same thing or like raising awareness um, for other things and other foundations. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I love the aesthetic of your design. Super Thank cute. You. <laughs> I was look I was looking at your page and I was like, I need that butterfly necklace. <laughs> yeah. so cute. It's got chains and everything. It's like this is the greatest thing for layering, and I'm gonna buy. <laughs> Thank um, you. Where else can they find you? You're on Instagram and you have a website, right? Yes, I'm on Instagram. I have a website. We have a TikTok that's not doing too well, but it'll get better. That's what I keep on telling myself. Um, we have a Depop. Um, hopefully, in like two years, we can set up an Etsy when I'm 18. I'm crossing my fingers. And then we did have a Facebook for a short period of time, but that was like really confusing. So I kind of just like shut it down. I was like, I'm not going to mess with that. But um, so yeah, that's where you can really find us. All right. And we're going to do a couple of shout outs for other Yemen organizations. So at the Yemen Fund, they sell bracelets for the Yemen crisis. Very cute. Tutors for Yemen. Do you need tutoring? Get yourself tutored and donate to Yemen. Um, this one's interesting. At Walk 7 for Yemen, seven marathons in seven days for Yemen. I think they're on their fifth marathon right now. It's a group of girls doing marathons, and they have a trust uh, GoFundMe. Uh, very awesome. Succulents for Yemen, selling succulents, obviously. Um, at the Fight for Yemen, they're selling beautiful merch, T-shirts, tie-dye, everything right there. Um, stickers for Yemen, handcrafted stickers of boba, crock shoes, mushrooms, and um, much more. I bake for Yemen. Uh, they sell baked goods for Yemen from the UK. So make sure you go out and check Ainsley's stuff at Girls Inc. for Yemen. All right. So we just talked about um, Persia and the roots of the Middle East. Now we're going to move on to something more recent, Arab Spring and its effects. Uh, Arab Spring was a series of pro-democratic uprisings that enveloped several large Muslim countries, including Tanzania, Morocco, Syria, Libya, Egypt, and Bahrain. Um, and it also impacted Yemen. The events in these nations generally began in the spring of 2011, which led to the name. However, the political and social impact of these popular uprisings remains significant today, years after many of And in fact, for many countries enveloped by the riots of Arab Spring, the period since then has been hallmarked by increased instability and oppression, specifically in the Middle East. Um, the significant impact of Arab Spring throughout Northern Africa and the Middle East is easy to forget the series of large-scale political and social movements arguably began with a single act of defiance. Um, democracy like Czechoslovakia's 1968 Prague Spring. Um, Western media began popularizing the term Arab Spring in 2011. Um, the conflict has its roots 
in the failure of a political transition um, supposed to bring stability to Yemen following an Arab Spring uprising that forced its longtime authoritarian president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, to hand over power to his deputy, um, Abdraba Mansour Hadi, in 2011. So as president, Mr. Hadi struggled to deal with a variety of problems, including attacks by jihadists, a separate movement in the South, the continuing, the continuing, the continuing loyalty of security personnel to Saleh, as well as corruption, unemployment, and food insecurity. A lot happened. <laughs> Definitely a lot. Um, so going back over those events, we can see that democracy is something that's very important to these people. Um, is that something we take for granted in the U.S.? I think so. Um, I think we definitely take the democracy we have for granted. Um, but I also, part of me thinks it's not a full democracy. I um, just because of like a lot of the electoral college things and, you know, um, the judicial, blah, blah, blah. oh my gosh, I cannot, the judicial branch is appointed by um, people in the government. So we don't have any say over like who's in our Supreme Court. We do have say over who's the president, but um, in recent years, it's definitely been more divided and it's been very close. So a lot of the people who are kind of, who did not vote for that just barely president, um, that's what I call them, um, definitely feel like, um, you know, a little, oh my God, I'm, I'm blanking on words today. Um, I guess for lack of better term, sucky. I mean, they feel like their voice doesn't matter, especially when the popular vote does not count. Like, um, in the 2016 election, and um, I think in the 2000 election with Al Gore and Bush. Um, so I think um, there are some flaws to our democracy, but we absolutely take the democracy we have for granted. That's kind of my answer. <laughs> Certain places don't have democracy and they fight for it, we tend to look down on them. So like, in in the hong kong protests for example they're fighting for their democracy for their rights and instead of us being like yes go for it we kind of just take it for granted and then we look down on them and see them as um oh you're, this is why your country is horrible and like this is everything that's wrong and you guys are all extremists and stuff just because we ourselves have never had to fight for it. And so we take our privilege for granted. Like it's absolutely a privilege to be able to vote and have a say in government at all. And yet anytime we see other people fighting for that same privilege, we just, we just look down on them and it doesn't make any sense to me. And we do that with everything. Anytime anyone in any circumstance tries to fight for a privilege or for their equality or for different rights, most people here will look down on them and will think that they're 
being extreme or that they can live without it or something or another. And it's just absurd to me. Yes, definitely. America absolutely has a traditionalist mindset of just keep everything the same. So we're the best country, best country. Um, and if ever anyone tries to change anything, we'll look down upon them. Um, that's such an amazing point. <laughs> Definitely. I think a, a huge part of us taking democracy for granted is when we don't research or we don't look into anything that we're voting for. I think as like a citizen, you should do your best. I mean, that might be hard with all the fake news and everything out there, but you should at least try to be a little bit informed about the decisions you're making. I mean, I know a lot of people in the older generation, uh, they would go vote for the president, right? And there'd be like other things on that ballot that they have no idea about. So they're like, oh, who's the, who's, who, who have I seen in the news recently? Or like, who was the last person I was in? I'll just, they seem okay. I'll just check them in. And you know, there's not a lot of whole thought that goes into it. What are the policies? What are the opinions? You know, I think that is definitely a point of democracy that we take for granted. Yes. All right. Um, recently, the term glamorizing the revolution has come about, about um, us, I guess, hyping up other countries, which we don't do often, but um, talking about how we glamorize revolutions, basically. What do you guys think about that? Um, I think it's common, especially in the younger generations, to um, kind of make a revolution or fighting for just basic human rights into an aesthetic and that's i mean demoralizing to the um movement right like the the only thing that i can that can come up right now is the hello kitty says a cab which is just like so not serious and just but i i think um while older generations and traditionalists look down upon revolution younger generations and more progressive minded people tend to glamorize it. And I fell into that um, kind of glamorization, especially um, before I did my research, right? The thing you were talking about um, in like in early summer, but then like in like midsummer, like July, I was like, this is just terrible. Like, I like, I kind of look back at that and I'm like, why did I even like think that was okay? Um, because it, again, it demoralizes the revolution. It, um, it just makes it a, um, commodity. It makes it a, uh, um, just a product, if that makes sense. Like, you know what I'm saying? I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> I got you. Be informed and, um, know that these things are happening, but then that comes hand in hand with, um, because it gains traction so quickly and because it's such a large amount of people who are all invested in it, uh, most of those people don't bother to really look into the issue. And it's more like, oh, I'll sign this petition and feel good about myself rather than actually doing anything. And so that lends itself to a lot of um, people signing just BS things that don't matter to anyone and is just turning the whole um, important serious issue into nothing basically and it it's I don't 
I, I have very mixed reviews about how we as a generation go about um, getting things done on important issues. Because on one hand, like, we're doing things and we're, you know, it we actually get issues acknowledged. But on the other hand, like, I think because of how we've grown up with technology, we just tend to popularize everything and make things into a fashion fad. And it's like, it's not a fad. It's not going away. You need to be mindful and helpful, you know? I definitely agree. I think I saw a post sometime earlier this week um, about the Black Lives Matter movement and how in the beginning of that movement, people were protesting and rioting and everything. And then it showed a statistic about how many people were supporting Black-owned businesses and the bar was really high. And then cut back to like December, November this year and it was like almost nothing. I hate that we, it's like a trend, you know what I'm saying? It's and it can't be a trend because it's people's lives, it's people's rights. Um, and that's why I think it's really important that there's people like us, like you, that are doing these things uh, and keep doing these things in order to ensure that we don't forget. Thank you. That, like, means a lot. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm really bad. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, taking compliments. Like, when you say you like my products, I'm like... <laughs> but yeah <laughs> all right so moving on um sovereignty is a very important topic it's basically the independence of a nation how do we balance that with international politics with domestic disputes in other countries so basically um say a country is having a huge humanitarian crisis like yemen um, and they won't let anyone interfere they won't let us send food water or anything what should we do as a country in order to settle that? Should we go to war with that country to help their people or should we just stay out of it? I think America has um, especially um, a certain percentage of us, around 50% have a mindset of America first, um, that we come before anyone else, that whole, like I mentioned before, individualistic mindset. Um, I, I mean, I'm not a very strong supporter of war. Um, I think humanitarian aid should absolutely come before war, but if it's the if it's ultimately necessary, I guess it's fine. But uh, more recent wars, we've been uh, against these countries warring for their minerals and oil and just completely destroying them. And I think this is definitely um, a a reason why a lot of Middle Eastern countries are in the state they are in. So I think like we almost have a duty to kind of reprimand them for ruining their country by providing humanitarian aid, but not a lot of people share that um, belief. Um, I, I just think we owe it to them to provide them help. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Other countries having horrible experiences with us and then blocking themselves out, you know, like blocking us out because we'll, if we go in, we're just going to exploit them some more. And so um, it's just, it shouldn't be, I know it is, but it shouldn't be a political thing. It should be a compassionate, like humanitarian thing where you go in and you help people because you care about them, 
because you recognize the importance of their lives, you know. Um, but, um, yeah. Um, I think that also ties them a little bit to human nature. Like, I feel like as a product, I mean, I don't want to, I guess as a product of capitalism, we have become um, hedonistic in nature and we've become, I hate, I've used this word like, what, 10,000 times, but individualistic, um, just thinking about ourselves. And I mean, humans aren't meant to think like that. We're pack animals. We always have been. We're supposed to think about the other people and, you know, how they are and helping them. And yeah, I don't know. It always like makes me really angry, but also like devastated to see that we're kind of pushing back um, our like our like pack mentality into a more I'm the only one that matters. And that's frustrating. But yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we talked about this in a couple previous episodes, but just the implementation of agriculture, like changed everything about how we interact with the world in a very negative way. And so in my viewpoint where how we live now is very unnatural and so it's extremely difficult to reconcile our lives as we live them now with helping others because you know it's like um the crab mentality where if you put crabs in a bowl and one of them starts to escape the others will pull it back down but you know crabs don't naturally occur in bowls. It's an unnatural thing. And so you can't really blame them for how they react. And you can't really expect them to like adapt and change and shift when they've been forced into something completely unnatural and oppressive to them, you know? Yeah, we definitely see this a lot with the pushback from um, the US involvement in the war of terror a lot when we went out to those countries a lot of them did not take too well to um, the military actions we were pulling and they overall just thought of it more invasive even though they were living in that oppressive regime like state um and to be honest they're still in that state and whatever we're doing is not working so even just humanitarian aid should be something that's not turning political it should be something that's universal and just, you know, um, accepted for everyone. So we've talked about Arab Spring and now we're finally moving on to the Yemen crisis itself. So the Yemen is experiencing one of the modern world's worst humanitarian crises. Right now they're in a civil war stemming from the failure of a political transition said earlier um, from Arab Spring that forced their longtime president to hand over their power to another. Um, and that administration has a multitude of problems, as stated earlier, um, again, with the, the terrorists and jihadists and the loyalty of the personnel. There's corruption, crime, and rampant poverty. It was during this period of government weakness that the Houthi movement championing the Zadi Shia Muslim minority in Yemen took control of the Sada Providence and eventually the capital city of Sanna. So this is really rooted deeply in um, religion 
and the conflict of views of that um, of these two sides. Um, so the Houthis and the security forces that are still loyal to Salah attempted to take control of the country in 2015 before the U.S., U.K., and France-backed coalition um, began air campaigns that restored Hadi's government. So the war has been like a stalemate for over four years as coalition troops attempt to drive the Houthis out of Yemen. Um, and that, that is a really long time for these people to be without food and water. There's at least 7,700 civilian casualties that have been attributed to these coalition airstrikes. Thousands of civilians have perished or been injured. Um, there's disease, malnutrition, starvation. Most 24 million Yemens need humanitarian aid right now. Um, 10 million of them are considered one step away from famine, according to the UN. I think when I first heard about the crisis in Yemen, I sort of understood, but I would have never been able to really grasp the depth of suffering and like just the widespread devastation unless I had researched it for myself, you know, because I, like there that's three million people just displaced, you know, like there's so much suffering and if you look at the photos and you just see most of the country is just ruins and you're like why do people not care you know like how how much suffering will it take for people to get their attention or is it because people are suffering that others find it uncomfortable that they can't help in a better way i'm not sure but I know that just glancing at it does not do it justice at all. I mean, awareness is just key. Like, going back um, to what Emily said, I barely even heard about it before the summer. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, there's crises down there. Like, that just happens. Um, but I, when I looked into the depth, I was like, this is terrible. Like, I cannot believe it's not spoken about or, like or just that people like don't care enough about that. And so I think just getting the severity of it out there is very important. Cause that's kind of what like put a fire under my butt. Like, like I like, I had to do something about this. Um, so yeah, I just think like increasing education on this subject and why and what we can do um, like donate and stuff like that is very important. I think it's also very important to support people who are trying to make change in Yemen. Um, finding organizations like yours or going to UNICEF and just donating. I mean, even I saw I saw a post of like ten dollars does so much does so much for them. Um, but I also agree, information is key especially on social media, if you get something viral, it will spread and therefore more people will donate and everything, which it's kind of a sad resort that we have to go through, but it's definitely what we need to do to make change. Yeah. Um, the $10 actually reminded me of something. When we were little, little, actually, I don't know if it went to directly to Yemen, but um, on Halloween, my school gave out these UNICEF boxes. You'd go around, like, spare change or something like that, and, like, the top person who raised the most money got a prize. Um, 
And I think like each year we raised like over like $500 just by those like change boxes. Um, and I think that's like so incredibly cool. Like, um, like we're doing something like as like five-year-olds just like going around the neighborhood and, and asking for like a quarter or two, like, and the $10 really does so much. Like, I think I try to price my products um, so that with each order, you're providing for a family, like, a week of food or something like that. Um, and just, like, it's just the – you wouldn't expect the amount of money that you put to go as far it, as it does. Um so that's very important. I don't know. That's just reminded me of like something of my childhood, a little nostalgia. Um, but yeah. Yeah, the the units does a lot. Um, I think I think this year it was for Yemen. Last year it was for the Bahamas after the hurricane. Um, and then each year I think that there's there's always something else. So they they change it up yearly. Um, but as we saw in the, the research been going on for four years and this is the first I've heard anyone talk about it which is very very scary like we, we really don't know what's going on outside of our own little bubble sometimes okay so moving on what are our responsibilities as humans or individuals to others this is like a really personal question so take it how you want um I mean our responsibility as humans is kind of like to help out other people who are struggling if even if it's just like a smile just like be I mean that's incredibly cliche like um but like just help people out like be who we were like really meant to be like that pack mentality we were um talking about earlier and just like help people out, like, give them a hug, even, like, mental health, like, goes a long way, um, and if you can, donate, if, if you can't, just be a nice person, our responsibility as humans is to just be kind, and give back what we have, and, and going back to religion, like, I feel like that's what every single religion teaches before it gets that reputation of, um, you know, like, um, like that reputation of like evil and just people taking it the wrong way and using it for prejudice and just stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I feel like religion is originally uh, a tool uh, to have a common identity, a common purpose and, um, you know, to situate your place in the world. And Nowadays, most of the time, people just use religion as a weapon to hurt, to hurt others. And, um, you know, I feel like my, the most important thing I see um, that's, like, important as a human is to not be selfish and greedy. Like, to me, those two are the main downfalls of um, just being a human. If you start to be self-centered and selfish and individualistic in your own personal gain, just everything goes downhill from there. And it's, it's applicable 
all over the place, you know. Yeah, I definitely agree. Like, as a human, I don't think anyone should look at someone else and see them suffering and just be like, ah, whatever. You know, I think it's just rooted deep within us to have that sympathy, to have that empathy, to be able to connect with people and find it in ourselves to give just like a little bit if we can. Um, had I known that everyone had great responses, I would have saved that for the last question. So we're going <laughs> to move on. Um, do you think governments, companies, and other organizations should have social responsibility in force? I think so. I think there should be enough in, um, like responsibility enforced in these companies, um, especially billionaire companies like we were talking about before, and governments like um, there should they should have a responsibility to the people, to the environment, um, but focusing in on like the social and people aspect, I think should they should have a responsibility to at least help out, you know, like we were talking about our responsibilities of, as humans, just kind of like <clears throat> keeping that same mindset of helping out because normally money um, shuts us down, like money makes us evil and greedy and yeah but i think the one thing that nobody can argue with is that you cannot hurt other people like maybe you don't you don't have to be a good person you don't have to help people out you know just be your horrible person that's fine you can you can be like that whatever but you can't just harm the environment because it will benefit you you can't just have child sweatshops at the, where they die and where you don't pay them anything like you can't you to me, you should not be able to harm others in your pursuit of wealth. Like, that's just, I feel like that's where the restriction should be enforced, is you have to go ethically resourced. You know, you have to do things that will not bring inevitable harm to everybody else, you know. I think it's a little a little hard when we're talking about, like, international politics. It's like, incredibly dicey and on edge and everyone's tense and everything um i mean if we look at the un they they do have great organizations set up the banks and everything that help unite everyone else but they don't have a lot of power you know what i'm saying not a lot of jurisdiction so if like someone's out of line they're not going to be like i mean they can strip them of like the trading rights and everything but they can't enforce military action or anything so it's kind of hard to have all these people, I mean, I know we do, we want them to be socially responsible, but it's kind of hard to get them to contain that, especially when it's most of the Western countries telling the Eastern countries that. And then you get a little bit cultural, like on the line, you know, and it's just, it's very dicey. So it's incredibly hard to have that social responsibility in force, but I do think we should at least try. Okay, and then our last question. Do you think we are desensitized to crisis? Absolutely. I mean, um, especially in America, like all of our shows and TV um, series and movies and songs are filled with um, world um, events and military action and war and stuff like that 
I think as a country, we are desensitized to crisis, uh, especially also because of the media and what they choose to report on. Um, and I don't, and as a, as a world, I can't really speak on, you know, like, um, other countries, but I definitely do know the United States is very desensitized to crisis and war and violence, especially with, um, inside the country with school shooters and, um, terrorism, domestic or, um, international and, yeah. something to be said for the disparities in between generations in the U.S. and how we handle crises because older generations are more likely to ignore it and pretend like it doesn't exist or to hear something about it and never do anything, never research, never look into it. And so in that way, they're desensitized and, oh, I heard about it. I'm never going to look into it and I don't care type of thing. Whereas Younger generations, especially our generation, we've always grown up knowing that the U.S. is a violent force, knowing that we bully other countries and that we harm more than do good. Like, we've always just had the mentality of we're not really safe anywhere, you know, with the school shootings, with um, 9-11, like most people felt safe before 9-11, we've never had that type of security or that type of faith in our government. Like, you know, with the, with the bombings, um, the atomic bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it's like, I've never thought of our country as a positive worldwide force, you know? And so I feel like for the younger generations, crisis has just always been around us so we're always seeing new things we're always looking into them we're always well most of us are always trying to help and there's this unspoken pressure that you should always be trying to help and you should always be trying to look into things and that can get really overwhelming for us since we've never had a time without it so i think that we desensitize ourselves on purpose to stop feeling so overwhelmed and that can have a lot of negative impacts i think there's a lot of nuance in our generation as far as how we handle things that just makes it really difficult and um <clears throat> i think we need a better coping mechanism and i think there needs to be um less pressure to always do things and more like it's okay take a breather take a break you don't have to constantly be on edge and constantly be worrying about this and you know type of thing i think it's sad to say that sometimes i when, when we're researching for these episodes and we're talking about crises like that we see like oh one million died or this and that and that and i just read it and i just you know I, that's what it is that's what's happening i don't get an explicit um emotional reaction out of it which you know i'm not a psychopath but i mean i'm sad <laughs> that's not what i wanted to end this on um, but it is, it's terrible that we just accept these things as they are. Um, but that's why it's so important for us to keep on going. You know, that's why it's important that we acknowledge this, but we're going to keep, we're just going to keep fighting and we're just going to keep moving up and 
trying to help people, trying to make that difference. Yeah, and to your point with the numbers, like the 1 million or like the 200,000, um, what, what, what helps me visualize it is seeing names. Mm-hmm. It's like they take up more space. They're not just another statistic. Um, you see the last name. They're part of a family. Like, especially, um, I hate bringing up topics like these. Um, like the Holocaust, you hear 10 million and 6 million, sorry. Um, and you're like, wow, that's a lot. You move on with your day. But if you do more intensive research, um, you realize like, wow, that is a lot of people. That's a lot of in- intergenerational trauma. Like, and, and same thing with, um, um, with the history of slavery and, um, and, uh, and even COVID-19, like that is so much trauma that is just passed off as a statistic. Like you hear, like, I think it's like 300,000 and you're like, well, at least it's not a million, but you, but it's more than zero. So, like, that's more than zero families affected. And I, that's just a huge thank you for bringing that up. The, the whole idea of we are just another statistic instead of they are part of a family really contributes to the desensitization of, um, you know, of these crises. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Make sure to, make sure to check out uh, Girls Think for Yemen. Um, amazing jewelry, great prices, supporting the crisis, not supporting crisis, donating to the crisis. <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. It was a really great experience. I like, I like going on podcasts. I might have to do it more often. Like it's, <laughs> it's so chill, but you're also talking about, I don't know. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me on. <laughs> Darius the Great. Your accomplishments and open mindset helped push the Persian Empire to its best. Efficient communication and agriculture, freedom of religion, and equality among all people are reflected well in your rulership. The creation of the first universal basic human rights code inspired the idea that humans have a right to survival. Persia was a decisive, honest, and tolerant place to live, so we wonder, How would you feel if you saw the violence and division in the Middle East now? The disparity between the great empire you conquered and the torn lands of today seems contradictory to your primary mission. We have witnessed so much suffering, violence, and war, thousands of people dying and dead. And we ask you, is there an end in sight? The national politics are unstable, tense, and ever-changing. How would you have handled the pressure we are under now? Would you have been able to prevent the situation we find ourselves in today? The importance humans once placed on empathy, compassion, and community has dissipated. As Gen Z struggles to navigate a violent, tumultuous world, we long for the time when caring for others was a given. Our efforts to bridge the gap between East and West will never stop. We continue to try our hardest to overcome the politics and desensitization which prevent us from helping those in need. Wish us luck. Sincerely, Gen Z. This has been Yvonne Liu and Emily Lobin.
us next time for an episode on ancient Greece and the LGBT community. We want to say a huge thank you to our amazing social media research and editing team for helping us put together this episode. Make sure to check out Ainsley's Instagram and store at Girls Inc. for Young. Follow us on all platforms at Dear Dead People the Podcast for updates and news.